Well, I mentioned yesterday on Alex Garrett Podcasting the idea of fair share. And quite often when we talk about real estate and tenants, landlords, everybody seems to lean toward the tenant uh, being, you know, getting their fair share and, and being asked not to pay for rent, especially during a time of COVID. But is the eviction moratorium getting out of hand to the point where $125 million had to be doled out for over 1,600 applicants uh, for landlords, uh, you know, landlord applicants? Is it getting out of hand, though? Should we be collecting rent again? My next guest, Stephen Ebert of Kasson & Kasson LLP, joins me to answer that question. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for joining. Alex, thank you so much for you know letting me join your podcast, and this is a very, very important issue. And I think when, when taking a step back, it's really important that govern, government take the approach of having real due process and really a respect for how transactions and relationships are governed so that parties, regardless of what side of the equation you're on, or even if it's even non-real estate matters, they have a sense of what are the rules of the game, and that way everyone really knows that there's a fair and consistent approach. Now, obviously, we know COVID has been a real trying time for people. It has been very trying for tenants. It's also been very trying for landlords. And what I want to do for a second is lay out the situation that people are in, right? We understand that tenants, and and by the in, in this matter, we're talking about both residential and commercial, because there are laws in effect impacting both sides. And I understand each month these tenants have a bill coming due and revenue hasn't been the same for some businesses. Employment opportunities hasn't been the same for some individuals, but also to keep in mind that there is a domino effect, right? The bills for the landlords keep on coming in. They have insurance, they have property taxes, they have mortgages. Maybe there's water and other utility bills. All of those are still coming into effect as well. So, there, so whenever trying to determine a policy, there's a chain reaction. So when this process started, when thinking about a moratorium on evictions, allowing tenants to not currently pay rent, and that's another important point I want to mention, tenants are not being given a freebie, but they're given the opportunity to defer the payment of rent. And at some point, there'll be a day of reckoning for folks, and we should definitely talk about that. The same kind of deferrals didn't quite exist for landlords, but there are some things out there, but there are also some decisions landlords have to make. Well, you know, my day of reckoning. So does that day of reckoning include asking those who fled their apartments without even paying their share of the apartment, just jetting because of COVID? Will the day of reckoning come where those people have to you know, pay up? Is that ever going to happen or is that lost money for landlords now? I think it's I think it's going to be tough. I do think eventually there will be some day of reckoning for some folks, not for all. And if I could probably give one bit of advice, it's and this is also a moral comment to make uh, as well. Be in communication. You know, now there's an opportunity probably to go ahead and trying to maybe negotiate some sort of settlement between the parties. But once these moratoriums end, once the courts are back to a normal process, at some point there is an obligation. And at some point, if you're a tenant, one day you will probably want to be a tenant again, um, or some action could be taken against you, which could affect you buying a home. 
So do do keep that in mind. Um, at the moment um, in New York, the moratorium got extended again to January 15th, 2022. And we've had numerous extensions over the last 18 months with these moratoriums. So can I honestly say that that's the last extension? No, um, we can't say that. Um, but that's what the latest uh, extension is. Do you, don't you think the moratorium is sort of like a way to g- give these too much leeway to, to tenants? I mean, as mentioned earlier, fair share. Why not just start collecting rent again? What What's the big holdup? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's two. If we look in, if we look in the legislation that's out there and the rationale behind the legislation, there's basically two major streams of thought. One is economic, saying, oh, because of COVID, there's been such economic disruption in a unique way, and we don't want to have massive levels of displacement. And the second one is a public health one, saying we really can't have certain vulnerable people, whether they have health issues, certain seniors, that then we need to really push off having to move around because it could really have a desperate impact um, from people's healthiness. Um, I think the first argument is really tough to argue anymore. I mean, we're looking in a situation where we keep on having growth in employment and low unemployment rates. Um, and thankfully, the economy has weathered things well. And, and one of the major problems with the economy right now is actually getting um, employees to work. So I think the argument for the economic reason at this point in time, not necessarily a year ago, but at this moment in time, I don't think that really holds up. The second component is the public health side of it. And I think this is where as we've seen increased vaccinations and also recently with people who have underlying conditions, seniors, and also frontline workers being able to get that third booster shot, which seems to show a really high level of coverage. And the fact it seems that um, COVID rates are starting to dip down. Um, and the fact that Dr. Fauci even came out recently and said, trick-or-treating, you know, with the right kind of conditions are okay this year where it wasn't last year. And talking about maybe that it will be okay to get together as families and groups indoors for Christmas. Um, those are some positive signs. That's a big backtrack, if, by the way. Yeah, it's, that's, it's really huge. Um, so if we're hearing these kind of noises, and look, it might change in two weeks. Um, you know, I think we need to, if we're going to have an emergency remedy, we want to make sure that we understand it's an emergency and not a new way to conduct business. And it needs to be really considered. Well, is there, and I know this is a right-leaning term, but is there a quote-unquote power grab now by this government uh, to take everything they can, including business away from landlords and, and, and real estate. It, it, are they using this to control the real estate? I guess my next question. Yeah, well, I, I, I want to point to two cases where the courts have overturned um, the legislature to give a sense on one side, and then we'll talk about some other items. The first one was earlier this year, the CDC attempted to have a moratorium. And really, it was the first time that the CDC an agency that's really empowered to research and also try to fight, you know, pandemics, made any decisions which would constitute what we call a taking of private property. And this really was a great overreach 
of um, of their authority, as well as the manner in which that that rulemaking was done. It avoided what's called the federal law, the Administrative Procedure Act. There's a certain way in which agencies, if they're taking action, also need to approach the process, because regardless of whether one agrees or disagrees with a rule, we need to have a consistent way in which rules are made and passed. And if we're not following that, we have a real problem with due process. And so on that, the CDC lost. Then secondly, as part of this eviction moratorium, the tenants have to say that there is a real impact, a real problem linked with COVID. That's why that their eviction should be deferred and not allowed at this time. And they have to sign a statement. And New York lost also in the courts because initially they allowed the tenant to also be their own witness, right? The tenant, all they do is fill out an affidavit as to the impact, and that in and of itself would stand up and not being able to be challenged. They lost on that law as well because truly such a statement would be self-serving, and, and you really it's unprecedented to have somebody who would be a party to a case being able to determine the facts of the case as well. Stephen, I got sure. got I got a credit where credits do I hear you on uh, I on real estate because I actually work behind the board with you guys almost every Saturday on AM 970 the answer so that's how we we met through Dottie Herman and whatnot but one thing that I figured you'd be great uh, on this story is because you started to raise the alarm about the moratoriums months ago and when you said well you know closings on houses are already happening I said wait real estate's actually going on yet the moratorium's still happening so explain your wariness very early on with the continuation of these moratoriums. Yeah, absolutely. What happens is when government picks one side, it's already a problem. <clears throat> the government should always be really a neutral arbiter, somebody who's really sets up society and allow the free market to work and give the maximum amount of freedom for individual citizens to go about their business. And when the government moves away from that, you're causing problems. Regardless of what political philosophy you believe in, the government really should not be picking these winners or losers. Now, on top of that, in an unprecedented way, to really do a frontal assault on property rights is very disconcerting. This is one of the foundational elements of our society. Real estate is also one of the most traditional, most important sources of wealth and maintenance of families that are out there. And one of the concerns that I have out there is when you start really getting so involved, and particularly a country like America, where we're a federalist country, where the federal government has limited power and certain other powers are reserved with the states. And when you start crossing those lines, blurring those lines, it really presents a fundamental concern. And exactly as you point out, why is it okay for someone to buy a home or sell a home, move in and out of a home, finance a home, yet we can't take that same parallel course of conduct when it comes to rentals? If it's okay to buy and sell, why can't it be okay to rent and to go through the necessary processes to protect the rights of the landlord or the tenant in connection with that rental? Talking with Stephen Ebert of Kasson and Kasson LLP. Stephen, if they have questions for you about 
you know, these rent uh, guidelines and whether it be a tenant or a landlord, how can they get in touch with you? They're welcome to call me directly. My office number is 914-517-6941. And we're a firm that's in Manhattan and Westchester, New York, and also in Dallas and in Phoenix. And we deal with all sorts of real estate transactions and other related items. And um, we really have a good sense of what's going on in different states um, and in the national market, which is really helpful. Well, you, you just mentioned housing a minute ago. The housing market, has it been – how has that been affected with COVID? Because obviously when we talk about the markets, the housing bubble is always a conversation, is it not? You know, the one thing about real estate, it's either there's too many buyers or not enough buyers or too many sellers – not enough sellers, too much inventory, not enough inventory. There's always a something going on. And my personal belief, you always want to not, you want to have a little bit of a longer time horizon and make your moves based on that. You know, in talking about during the COVID time period, last year in particular, although into this year as well, a very active time period to refinance because rates were very attractive to a lot of people. And, you know, I do encourage anyone who currently has a mortgage and maybe hasn't refinanced in the last few years to just take a look, see if the numbers make sense, because there's, there are a few concerns about inflation on the horizon. You know, one can't predict the market, and I definitely would not want to go there. But when you see the testimony of the chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, and you see others, there are definitely some hints. And then also, honestly, if you go to the stores, just get a sense of how prices feel where they are now versus the way they were a year or two years ago. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, as to the market, also be very careful that you, you don't look at a homogenized statistic, right? Sometimes when they see national numbers, and that's helpful, real estate is the most local thing you can do. So if I was looking to purchase another property, I wouldn't even look at New York versus New Jersey numbers. I would look at certain neighborhoods in Manhattan versus certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn versus certain neighborhoods in certain suburbs in Westchester or Long Island. That's how really focused in one has to get when trying to see, um, you know, what's going on in the numbers or not. The last part is also when you have more of a mature market like Manhattan, for example, Manhattan's an island. You know, you can knock down buildings and rebuild and go taller but we're not really growing the island. You want to make sure you compare your local market, let's say there, versus let's say, for example, a place like Dallas where the city can actually expand. And there are some cases um, where you have in the south and out west where the boundaries of the municipality actually start incorporating suburbs and the city gets physically bigger over time. So that's an important thing to keep in comparison some of the statistics in cities are not exactly apples-to-apples comparisons. I think families are making that comparison because, as you know, 420,000-plus people left right before COVID, then during COVID, and I don't know how many are coming back, but also companies. And I think the big real estate question is, will companies actually come back to New York? And the reason why you move out is because taxes, right? Let's talk about that for a minute. Look look at the big announcement over the weekend, uh, Tesla. They're not fully leaving California. They said they actually will grow California, but the the main focus of the future growth is going to be in Texas. And that one came to mind. That's why I asked. So glad you picked up on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, at the end of the day, it's all about value. 
people don't mind paying a premium for a premium product, but nobody wants to get ripped off. I don't care if you're buying a sandwich or a car or a house or anything else. They want to know they're getting the value. And what a lot of governments need to understand is they see they need to understand what the value proposition that they're providing for people and businesses, and they need to make their case. But at a certain point, it's all about the numbers. People are going to say, as wonderful as I may like a place, if the, if the cost of doing business there is so high or so difficult, I need to look for alternatives. And this is part of what's going on. There is some level of people rethinking how they do business. I do want to say, you know, it, 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 there's a great expression. Things are never as good as they seem, and they're never as bad as they seem. And I think that's some truth what's going on right now. There have been people who have moved out. I think that was a very big story a year ago. There's also another part of the story that some people have moved back. But I think the big picture is our politicians need to understand that they need to make places livable. You know, I have three kids myself, and one of the questions that I've asked myself and talking about it with other families do we believe that our neighborhood is affordable enough that our kids would be able to afford the house that we currently live in? Mm. And I think one of the, for the first time, I think the question is we don't really don't know. I think if you went back a couple of generations, people felt fairly confident that salaries would increase enough that they could live in the neighborhood. And I think now we're approaching the point where it's a, we don't know. And that's a really scary thought for a lot of folks. And and the political class needs to really focus in on that. All right. Yeah. No, no they do. And I think uh, for companies that move out, I think making that statement is actually a good thing, if you ask me. I know it kills jobs here, but to make a statement might make a bigger impact. I think I think you have to have an honest conversation. I think also how we conduct deals. Like, for example, when we look at the cost of hiring a worker – Right When you're a business, you look at the total cost. It's not just the salary, but it's the benefits, it's the taxes. One of the things that the private sector and the government sector, the public sector, is doing that's different is in the private sector, you get a 401K. Right? You get your paycheck, and then if you sign up for the program, the employer will write a check also to the 401K plan. When it comes to government, there's a defined benefit pension where they make a payment down the road, and they don't necessarily have to pay the true cost of that employee's salary when the work was done. So it allows certain politicians to say, we can kick the can down the road for the cost of this extra service today into a cost in the future. And one of the things I think which would immediately have an impact is that government needs to pay for the service when the service is rendered, right? They should not be able to defer pension contributions 10, 20 years down the road. And instead, they should make full payment when the salary is paid. So they are not saddling the next mayor, the next governor with that cost. And so the taxpayers truly understand what the cost of that service is because we're not properly valuing things. And this is where we get into this constant debt cycle. Will a new mayor help the real estate situation while we're on, on the mayor, governor, and president, you know, politicians? I, I, think, I think it will be helpful. I think there is a lot of fatigue with the current mayor. 
I think regardless of one's political affiliation, there is a lot of concern with the current mayor. Uh, I think that's not saying anything truly unexpected. Um, the, uh, I, I, you know, my hope is that the next mayor and, you know, both candidates that are running um, have made statements to this effect that they recognize that there is a small universe who's primarily paying for things. Right. There's approximately in New York City about 65,000 people out of the over 8 million residents that really pay the majority of the bills. Mm. And so I'm not saying that one has to cater to every single one they have, but one also needs to understand to some degree of, look, this is the revenue you need to run the city. I mean, for example, when Bloomberg was mayor and he left, the New York City budget was about $60 billion a year. Right now, the budget is about $100 billion a year, less than a decade later. And I would argue, and I think the vast majority of New Yorkers would agree, that the level of service and the level of cleanliness in the city is actually lower now than it was under Bloomberg. And yet the budget went from 60 to $100 billion. At some point, you cannot have that rate of growth. And at some point, the taxpayers are going to say, look, I, I don't care if I agree or disagree with your party or other votes. You just you're just breaking the bank. Steve, you know, what, happens if they, point, what happens if we don't meet budget on these ginormous budgets set out? What happens? Well, that gets into a deeper a deeper question. New York City is supposed to have a quote unquote balanced budget, meaning that they have to at least line up the necessary revenue for these expenses. Um, we could go back, go back to, you know, before when, when Ed Koch became mayor, when New York City went bankrupt. If for those folks who are interested, look at the newspaper um, nearly 50 years ago, approximately, you know, I don't know, about 46 years ago, when Gerald Ford was president and the cover of one of the papers said, you know, that I'll be more polite than what they said, um, that the federal government told New York City to get lost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember a story, you know, this is going back personally. Um, I worked and was a little bit in the uh, Ed Rendell administration in, in Philadelphia when I was getting my master's in the Commerce Department. And I remember speaking to some folks, now this was already in the second term, but they said things were so bad in Philadelphia at the beginning where they only committed to paying bond payments and salary. Every other bill was put in the to pay later. So literally the public utility, right? Think about this, all the traffic lights, lights on bridges, they weren't paid for a number of years till the city caught back up. Mm. And if you go back and look at Philly as a as sort of a smaller version of New York, under Wilson Good, the city was a mess. Ed Rendell comes in, and in two years, he takes a city that had no money and had a budget surplus. So we really need the taxpayers to talk to the politicians and say, look, we need real managers here to actually run things appropriately. New York City is governable, right? Some folks in the past have said, oh, New York City can't be governed. We've proven that to be wrong. We just need someone to really focus in and make the right and tough decisions at times and not just give out effectively taxpayer candy to people so that way things are managed appropriately. I'm so glad you mentioned taxpayer candy because I, I got to ask you sort of, you know, closing, bookending it here. 
how much tax money is going into this $125 million landlord relief fund? How much went into the rent relief fund from those who were working and paying their taxes during COVID? And, and, and shouldn't the stimulus have helped pay some of the rents? I thought that was part of the plan, too. Well, so there's a lot to unpack, and those are great questions. So first off, it's ultimately the taxpayers, right? And as a society, the more people that you have on public assistance of various shapes and sizes, um, you have a smaller and smaller tax base that costs each taxpayer more money to cover those costs. So that that's the first thing. Um, and And... You know, I think next to the first responders who've done an amazing job, and, and my wife's a doctor, and she didn't skip a day throughout COVID. Um, you know, the taxpayers deserve the next award for keep on going up to work and paying their taxes to cover these um, real costs. Um, you know, the um, so that's what's really we're paying paying those bills. Now, as to the exact amounts and how things are being parceled out. Um, there are a variety of different programs, and there are some landlord relief programs out there, but the landlords effectively have a contract with the government that says if you accept this money, you are not allowed to evict the tenant except in very limited circumstances, right? Let's say the tenant is being destructive to the property or to a neighbor or things like that. Um, but generally speaking, if the landlord signs up for this program, you're stuck. So to any of those landlords thinking of accepting the governmental assistance, really look at the fine print to see what's going on. The other thing is that, and this is something that predates COVID, for those who are dealing with residential properties um, in New York, some of the rules have changed, right? It used to be for people who had month-to-month tenants, or even if they had, let's say, incremental one-year leases, you give them that 30-day notice at the end and their time is up. There was a law that was passed in 2019 that even predates COVID that if a tenant has been there for a certain period of time, regardless of whether there's a written lease or not, you may have to give as much as 90 days notice to that tenant um, before that they're required to leave. So you really got to keep current on the law. You can't just go by how you were doing business five years ago because that would be out of date. Well, and I think there's a there, there's sort of a progressive wing of the legislation that's leading to all of this, is there not? I don't know if you want to weigh in on that part of it, but sure. I mean, I think where we got to be very, very careful. I mean, you know, we have we've had a system that's worked pretty well for a long time, and this goes back to the founding of the country. And you know, property is one of the key cornerstones, and this allows the citizens to be invested in society. And, and you really don't want to rip that apart because that will really destroy what we are, you know, as, as a country. And, and with that, when we start getting into the more and more regulations, when we start getting into forced changes in property, right, when you're starting to talk about switching into energy generation systems and things like that, retrofitting buildings, you know, what's going to happen is if we're not careful, the ability for the next generation to continue to grow will be stolen. And that is the core of the American dream. If we make things so expensive and so complicated and so difficult, how does somebody start their own business? How does somebody really get a portfolio property? Because what will end up happening is the very thing that's being 
complained about the concentration of wealth with all of these regulations and all this interference, that is exactly what is happening. It is will destroy private property ownership. It will destroy entrepreneurship. I, I ask your listeners to go look online, and you're seeing now investment firms literally buying up and building neighborhoods of single-family homes for the sole purpose of renting them out. And that is very, very concerning to me because the, one of the foundational pillars of this country is people buying their own home. Mm. And so we've got to be very, very careful. Well, what, what is your message to those who can make the first of the month? Like what, to those who can afford the rent and, and just because the moratorium is on, does that mean rent payment has to stop or are people paying rent uh, despite the moratorium? Like how does that work? So the good news is the vast majority of Americans are paying their rent. They're able to and understand the legal requirement and the moral obligation to keep everything moving along. So I do want to also give some positives. The vast majority are paying. For those who are not paying, keep in mind, this is not a rental forgiveness program. It is a deferral of payment, right? This is like getting a credit card that says, open up a new credit card, transfer your old balance to the new one, and we won't charge you interest for the first six months. But after six months, you will have interest, and that balance is still there to be paid. So, so everyone should keep that in mind. Now, what happens also is that you're building up a bigger and bigger debt. So what happens is if, from the point of view of the landlords, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, I just can't pay you one month's rent. When all of a sudden it turns into six months, 12 months, two years, then the pot gets to be so big that the landlords will be more and more encouraged to go after the tenants because the cost of collection is about the same, but the sum of funds have grown so much that it's critical that they go after those funds. So to the tenants, I say be in touch with your landlords. I say to both sides, think about being in the other person's shoes and really try to see how you can come to some accommodation with one another. Can you maybe pay some of the rent? Can you work out some schedule? Um, can you maybe provide other services, right? Maybe you have a tenant who's very handy and the property needs some upgrades. So if the tenant maybe can't afford to write a check, maybe they can do some work in lieu of writing a check to the landlord to fix up the property. Have that conversation, see what how you can work out some sort of deal. Did you ever figure you'd be studying law? Did you ever study law to be uh, applied in COVID, you know, in a time of a pandemic? Was that ever a, a, a lesson in the curriculum? Well, when I was applying to law school, we were using Mosaic as our web navigator. So let me start with that. And the screens were general, the TV screen, the computer screens were generally green. So, you know, you got to expect the unexpected and adapt. Um, you know, this, this is really a once-in-a-century event, and I really hope, you know, it's more than a century where we have the next version of this. But, you know, I like to try to see the opportunity. When somebody is really stressed, you get a chance to see what they're made out of. And my challenge to our fellow citizens, our government, is to say, how can we take this challenge and really be the best we can be, Right. We did it in coming up with a vaccine. 
You know, most people were saying it's a four to five year turn time to get an effective vaccine. And it was done in a year, which is amazing. We have, as a country, distributed hundreds of millions in partnership with with private industry. And I'm also proud of a lot of the people I've worked with. I mean, I've done closings in people's garages and the driveways and the rain and parking lots. So we adapt and it doesn't get more American than that. And that is the theme, adaptability on the Alex Scare podcasting. So thanks for hitting that note as we close here, and pun intended, I guess, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Stephen, thanks so much. Do come back and uh, continue the dialogue when, when things uh, either improve in January or, or more announcement get made that it's extending past January. Let, let's keep an eye on that and, and have you back. Anytime. My and, pleasure for being here with you. And we can listen to you on uh, AM nine seven. The answer: I on real estate ten to twelve Saturdays, right? Yes. Please listen in, everyone, and call in with questions too. Sounds great. Eight six six nine seven zero nine six two two. Thanks so much, uh, Stephen. God bless, and talk to you soon. Be well. Thank you so much. I'm Alex Garrett. Where we're always adapting.